You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Maps. Now, if you haven't had the opportunity to get Onyx Maps on your phone, you need to get Onyx Maps on your phone, and I'm going to tell you why. Number one, I am the kind of guy who likes to know where I'm at at all times, and I like to do a lot of running and gunning. So there's times where access is very important for me, knowing where I was at, knowing how to get to a specific location, especially in the dark of morning or night, getting in and getting out. And the best part for me is that I have GPS on my phone and Onyx allows you to leave basically breadcrumbs uh, and leave a trail or your access routes on your phone, save those access routes, and then use your GPS going in and out of your tree stand locations every single day. And it's awesome because you won't get lost in the dark. And I use that so much, that little portion in itself, so much throughout the season that uh, it's probably the most useful function of that app. Now, you can also leave waypoints like where your trail cameras are at, where your tree stands are at, where you see scrapes and rubs or marking trailheads or campsites. This is the perfect app for a do-it-yourself hunter. I mean, really for all hunters, because it allows you to journal your properties that you hunt, right? And uh, the more information you have, the more successful you will be on a yearly basis because you keep gathering data and gathering data and gathering data. And soon you'll see trends in that data and those trends will lead you to hunting more efficiently and becoming more successful, in my opinion. So go to Onyx or wherever you download your apps, pick up Onyx, and you can use the discount code NATION20, N-A-T-I-O-N 20, and save 20% off for first-time users. Onyx Maps. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Hey guys, welcome to another Land and Legacy podcast. Have something different for you today. Uh, Frank Longcarriage here. I've got um, Kyle Hedges with me. So we are going to be talking about a, a subject that um, is... Uh, kind of near and dear to, to our hearts is kind of important to us it's a it's a subject that can be fairly controversial in the in in the game bird world specifically but also in the in the big game world and that's trapping 
and specifically predator removal. We'll talk about trapping and we'll talk about predator removal. And should predator removal be a part of your uh, overall management scheme? So uh, I want to bring Kyle in here. Kyle's a, uh, like I said, we're both trappers. Kyle has been trapping a lot longer than I have. In fact, uh, he taught me sort of the basics of trapping probably in 2009 2010 um, gave me some pointers took me out showed me how to make some dirt holes and whatnot and so I owe a lot and as much as I hate to admit this I owe a lot of what I know to Kyle as far as trapping goes um, so um, uh, Kyle let's talk about your experience as a trapper when did you get started what got you into trapping and, and um, just talk about your history as a trapper I was kind of a late bloomer to trapping. Uh, started in college. Uh, nobody in my family did it. My brother started messing with it a little bit. He was older, but he was gone out of the house after he graduated college. But it always intrigued me a little bit. Um, and so there was a trapper education course while I was in college. I attended that and just I learned as I went. Uh, the, the school of hard knocks. So. I went for several years, uh, you know, back then, this is, this is the 90s, we, early 90s, there wasn't internet, you couldn't watch YouTube videos, um, so, it was a little tougher to learn, the school of hard knocks, I had to find books, I ordered books, read books, uh, just went out and set traps, struggled with it, uh, but, learn as you go so anyway been doing it for I guess first traps I set was 1994 maybe so I'm 25 years into this at this point so um, anyway quite a few years of, of messing with it and so when you were when you were starting off I know a lot of folks start off with things that are fairly easy to trap like coons that's what I kind of went after the most when I when I started trapping coons or raccoons are very easy to catch is that what you started off with was the easy stuff or did you just jump right in with dirt holes and coyotes and and learn that way um, no coon, raccoons was my first target animal um, of course caught plenty of possums made plenty of dumb sets looking back on it but didn't know any better at the time but, um, raccoons was my first target animals and then I expanded, uh, I guess my, started messing around with some dirt trapping my second year and, and doing some water, you know, caught my first beaver the second year and muskrat, just kept expanding. You keep, grass is always greener, you know, you catch a little of this, well I want to try to catch one of those. A lot of new trappers, I've taught a lot of trapping clinics over the years, a lot of new trappers, everybody wants to catch either a bobcat or a coyote. Oh, right. That's the yeah. first thing. Well, coyotes are probably the toughest fur bear in the state of Missouri to catch. They're really wary. They're pretty smart. Um, they can just be difficult to catch. So it, to be successful, especially if we're talking young kids, you need to start out with something that's, that's easy to catch. Um, and raccoons, uh, other parts of the country, we don't have a lot of muskrats, but places that do, man, that's a great thing to start kids on. Uh, even even adults that are, are 
just late into the game. You want to have success. Going out and checking empty traps um, that you're going to do a lot when you're, when you're trying to catch coyotes or bobcats gets pretty discouraging pretty quick. Right, right. When I started, you know, I talked about I started with coons, and coons are fairly easy to catch, and I struggled with coyotes. I, I did dirt hole sets and wanted to, wanted to catch coyotes, and what I found was, was catching coyotes have always been has always been hard catching bobcats is not extremely difficult but there's just not a lot of them throughout the landscape and so they're they're hard to catch by you know at least where we live by the fact that they're not i mean we've got quite a few bobcats but they're just not behind every you know every tree we seem to have lots of lots of coyotes while they're harder to catch Success rate on coyotes seems to be higher because our bobcat population isn't as high as, as our coyote population. Coyote, bobcats aren't particularly difficult to catch. They're just not super abundant on the landscape. But everybody, like you said, wants to catch a bobcat. I mean, it's cool when you roll up on a, on a set and catch a bobcat. Sure, and their curiosity killed the cat. It's true with bobcats as well. So The biggest problem is you just need a cat to come by your set. You need to be where a cat is traveling um, that's the limiting factor um, but if you get a cat to come by there's a very good chance you're going to catch it whereas a coyote may or may not even get close enough to your set to, they're just that spooky they know something isn't right and they may skirt the area the first couple nights and just not even approach the set well let's talk about fur bears uh, from a broad perspective so fur bears populations uh, as most folks know ha- have dramatically increased in the last well probably since the probably since the 70s the, the, the late 70s uh, we've got data in Missouri Kyle, talk about that that shows this that that our fur bear populations are increasing there's a variety of reasons for that some of that is probably is certainly habitat induced habitat for our predator population has increased. There's also less pressure on these critters. There's less people out there coon hunting. There's less people out there uh, trapping. And and so the habitat has increased. Pressure on these critters has has decreased. It's a perfect storm for populations to to be at really all-time highs. Yeah, we've got sitting stations scattered throughout the state of Missouri um, that are scientific survey stations that are run and we have some data showing from 1977 to the mid 2000s raccoons have increased fourfold so gee fourfold yeah fourfold increase so um, bobcats have went up 20fold in that time 20 um, possums have been up fourfold skunks have doubled so you know that's got a people start pointing the finger everyone wants a silver bullet for what's wrong with the quail or what maybe is our turkey population has kind of went downhill the last uh, five or six years and people want to point to, to predators. That's got to be it. And it's a little more complex than that. A lot of this habitat has grown up before our eyes. A lot of what was good quail habitat, scrubby stuff in the 70s, is now forest. So it's going to be more habitat for r- raccoons and possums and less habitat for quails. So so some of those things have, have played out right before our eyes. We just didn't recognize it. But the other part of it is there was a fur market crash in the early 80s. And, and 
really. We've had some ups and downs in between there. We had some real nice ups in 2012, 2013 with prices, but the market's never really recovered. Back in the 1970s, I would say most people, especially in small town, rural towns, towns, you know, under 5,000 people population, most people knew someone that trapped. Right. And it may have been a family member. Right. And nowadays, if you ask around, do you know anybody that traps? It's hard to find anybody. A lot of people don't even know what you're talking about. Right. Um, so just the decline in trappers, and we have that data too. In 1980, Missouri Department of Conservation sold 20,000 trap permits. In the year 2000, we sold 2,000 permits. Wow. So wow. 90% reduction in trappers, that obviously has an impact to the harvest of these animals. So the, the populations have skyrocketed. Right. And so not only have, have trappers declined, you got to think about the guys that own a coonhound or two. That's that's way down. My grandfather or my grandpa, he always had coonhounds um, when he was when he was a young man my age. He had coonhounds and he eventually got out of it. My cousin, um, he went when he was in college. He helped pay for college expenses by fur trapping, right, and collecting fur. You'd be hard pressed to pay any bills right now trapping fur with the way the prices are so that you know we've got we've got less folks out there doing it and there's less incentive for folks to do it because you know we we have to be honest with ourselves one of the main drivers of wanting to get out there and trap fur bears is the financial incentive that comes with selling your fur and there's nothing wrong with that that is a huge driver in getting out there and wanting to to, to harvest fur trapping is an interesting sport or recreation to an outdoor activity compared to other forms of hunting and fishing uh, and because there is a money a monetary factor associated with it and a lot of people can't get over that I'd say it's a, a stigma or, and again yeah I've made some years I've made some money off trapping and that's okay but for some reason the, that decline in trappers a lot of it is related well I remember when I used to sell raccoons for $40 a piece. You know, now, realistically, a really nice coon in our part of the state of Missouri is, is 5 or $6. So, and that's skin and scraped and stretched. So I understand people's motivation is lower, but I'll, when people say that, well, I can't make any money doing it. Well, how much money do you make deer hunting? <laughs> right. How much money do you make crappie fishing? You know, some people are paying for a deer lease or you own a you know a, your bass fisherman you own a $40,000 bass boat right. so it um, doesn't have to make money if it's something we enjoy and something that we get our family out another way to enjoy our land um, so you know it, it's to each their own but, but sometimes I think we look at things the wrong way and for some reason trapping was looked at as a money maker from back in the day and people just can't get that out of their head right Right. And and how we want to take this podcast is we, we want to eventually, like, like we do with, with how Matt and Adam do with, with their podcast and when, when Kyle and I have been on, we, we want to steer this into the direction of habitat management and game population management. And we'll get there. But well, I want to take a, a quick step back and, and talk about the fur market before we move into that habitat again. 
and the fur market is is something that's driven by forces that we have most folks have no idea about they're driven by forces that are happening half a world away from us and Kyle you wrote an article in a recent uh, magazine uh, that talked about this um, these forces that are driving the fur market it's not what's going on in New York City or what's going on in, in North America there's factors beyond anything that we've dreamed about that's that's influencing fur can you touch on that before we kind of hop into the habitat portion yeah the bulk of the fur market is not the United States you know there's a pretty big animal rights movement has been going on for 20 30 years in, in the United States and although there's there is some fur um, that shows up on a variety of, of venues and scenes in the United States that that's a very minimal part of the fur sales uh, most of it is is Chinese uh, in, in China Korea a lot of fur moves over there and it's not just for the rich it's not just full-length coats in those countries you know there may be a little strip of raccoon fur on a purse that's $40 purse I mean regular people right. can afford this stuff this um, is like some bling on a purse it's a it, fashion yeah it's just kind of a fashion thing that's the cool thing um, Russia was really big player in the raccoon market uh, less than 10 years ago um, after they invaded Crimea or however you want to look at that political move um, uh, oil prices have been low that that affects Russia's economy they've kind of withdrew from from a lot of the fur market uh, some of the higher-end goods like otters bobcats um, they go to Greece Italy so this stuff is all over the, the world. And there are some high dollar, five, ten thousand dollar coats that still get made, don't get me wrong. But a lot of it is trim. Collars, cuffs, top of a pair of boots, strip on a purse. There's there's a lot of different uses uh, for this fur. And and right now, there's just not a real big demand for most species. I'll just touch on real quick where we're at. I already mentioned raccoon prices, you know, maybe a five or six dollars. That's scraped, dried, and stretched. Um, you know, coyotes are doing all right. Uh, some parts of the country, coyotes are, are hundred dollar bills if you're up in North Dakota or, or Wyoming. Uh, in our neck of the woods, a real nice coyote might be twenty, thirty dollars. Of course, a lot of them are not real nice coyotes. Right, right. Um, and, when, and real quick, when you're talking about real nice coyotes, are you talking about color or density of fur, length of fur, or, or all of the above? Yeah, all of the above. You know, they're, okay. they're looking for a, a certain color, the lighter shades, but certainly density of fur. We usually don't have the best density of fur. And our coyotes are a little coarser. feels like a horse's mane rather than real silky fur like they have out west. But beavers are just not worth much in our neck of the woods. I mean, literally 5 or $6 for a 40-pound beaver. And that's yeah. that's after you've skinned it, and Musk, that's a ton of effort to yeah, get mu put a beaver up. Muskrats are two or three dollars. Um, <laughs> bobcats, best bobcat in the county, you might get thirty, forty dollar bill out of it, unless you can find a taxidermist to buy it. So otters are down in the twenty dollar range. Uh, so there's just not a lot of, of money to be made. But I ran a trap line last week. I mean, I still enjoy doing it. Yep. And then there's a variety yep. of reasons we'll get into of why people do, still do it. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, I, and I'll run a trap line here in the next 
probably two to three weeks I'll run one and I won't run you know I'm, I'm not the trapper you are but I'll, I'll run one because it's it's fun and it can make a little bit of money doing that as well um, but so so we see the the habitat that's changed for these these critters uh, that has favored them at the same time it has changed to disfavor small game animals like quail and rabbits now but folks see this correlation well they see they see what what is a potential correlation they see raccoon um, numbers possum numbers going up and they see quail and rabbit populations declining and they maybe equate that as a causation well two things can happen simultaneously but not be not one cause the other so the increase in in raccoons is certainly having an effect on our quail and I, and I, we're talking about quail here specifically and I think for a long time we as biologists have ignored the role of predators and ignored the importance of predators because we've been so afraid that people would grasp onto that and only think about predators and not think about the habitat well we've got to stop thinking about we've got to stop approaching it that way we've got to be thinking about predators but how we think about it may be different than just going out there and directly removing them all right in a lot of situations um you know, let's not just the habitat we've lost habitat that favors raccoons but also the remaining habitat let's think of grasslands so grasslands are, are down to you know three percent of, of what they were native grass the tall grass grass and yeah the tall grass prairie let's look at that example so predators within that landscape now have a lot less area to search if they're after a, a, a target game animal that lives out there. If you're a coyote and you really want to focus on eating prairie chickens, well, there's a lot less prairie chickens, but they live in a lot smaller habitat now. So right. there's, there's less area to search, so they're they're more effective. We've, we've hemmed these quail in to, well, uh, on this farm, you know, I've only got three acres that I dedicate to quail over here, this, this old home place. Well, that's pretty easy for a raccoon to hunt that three acres. Right. Where, historically, that raccoon had to hunt, you know, 300 acres to find that, that quail's nest. So we, we've really made it easier on these predators in a lot of cases to, to find the, these animals that, that remain in these limited habitats. Right. And so we have at the same time reduced habitat for, for, for small game. We've hemmed them into smaller areas. We've increased habitat for these predators. These predators have subsequently in, increased in number. But the approach that, that, that we talk about and the approach that a lot of people want to, to, to consider as a silver bullet is, well, then let's go trap and remove these predators that's let's start with that let's trap and remove these predators let's trap as many as we can let's wage all-out war on raccoons skunks possums these nest predators as as a way to increase quail populations or increase rabbit populations but that's fundamentally wrong so kind of talk about how that's not the best approach and I'll and I'll step in and throw in some some data from that we've actually got data collected on this stuff 
yeah, there's there's some research out there where there's been efforts to, you know, for uh, direct removal of, of these animals. First of all, it's really expensive and it's really time consuming. So right. if we're going to go out and say, hey, we're going to trap raccoons, that's fine. If we're trapping raccoons right now and it's December and we remove 20 raccoons off a of property, okay, that's fine. That has really minimal effect come next June when they have to be nesting. Right. They fill back in so quickly from the neighbors' populations. Um, coyotes, for example, they can actually adjust their reproduction. So instead of a coyote having a litter of three pups when times are tough, she'll have a litter of six pups. Geez. <laughs> so they can they can just ramp up there to fill back in these voids. So um, this direct removal is is risky people want to go out hey I just want to trap these animals well first of all you got to do it year-round and when you're talking ground nesting birds you need to be doing it you know early or throughout the spring and summer through the nesting season so in a lot of states that's not even legal right uh, if, if it is legal it's all this time-consuming effort at the same time some people are trying to do that yet they have mediocre to poor habitat right so if they spent say 200 hours a year messing with all this trapping effort and they didn't spend two, those 200 hours working on their habitat have we really gained anything? And no. the answer is no. There's right. plenty of research out there to prove that that doesn't work. You, those 200 hours working on habitat would have been a way better spent than messing with predator removal and having mediocre habitat. Right. Now we would we could point at some data from from the southeast, for example. There's a there's a a long-term data set of of radio collared quail in the southeast part of the United States. And in as a part of this, these these are plantations that are managed for quail as the number one focus. Quail is the number one focus. Then after that may come profit, but bobwhite quail are the number one focus and they do everything that they can to manage for quail and the first thing they do is they get their habitat completely tricked out 100% usable space if at all possible they are managing their habitat to the best way possible but they are also doing predator removal so they're trapping predators year-round they're trapping them in every month of the year specifically working as hardest as they can in that nesting season or in that early nesting season to remove as many nest predators as they can what they're doing is they're 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 making every effort to catch these animals that are filling the voids back in off of neighboring properties that we talk about well there's been a, a so, some data out of there that's showing that that is increasing the nesting effort of their hens they're getting more nesting but they're also getting higher chick survival so that predator removal is additive. They are adding quail to their fall populations, right? But that would all be a moot point if they didn't do the habitat efforts first. If they just had mediocre habitat and did all of that predator removal, they wouldn't see the response that they would see. So again, as we talk about, habitat management must come first. And as we, you and I have talked about, we've not seen a place in the Midwest, certainly that's tricked out, where people can say, okay, I'm done with managing habitat, let me focus on predators now. 
absolutely not. Never seen 100% usable space yet. So don't know anybody that's ready to move on to that step of, of year-round predator removal. And then we could take it a step further, even where, um, whether it's for predator removal or it's just due to certain prices at certain times, uh, you know, heavy trapping pressure on a certain species. Some of these food chains are so complex right. that we can actually have ill effects on maybe other species that we didn't anticipate. Um, one example is up up in the Prairie Pothole region. Um, those so this is the Upper Midwest, the yeah, Dakotas, places the Dakotas. like that. So these these some of the North Dakota coyotes are some of the highest priced coyotes in the world right now. Um, they're using them for Canada goose coats, uh, the, the liner uh, around the hood. $100 coyotes. Well, that really has ramped up the pressure on coyote trapping and, and predator calling in the Dakotas. Well, coyotes kill red foxes. Right. Red foxes are really good nest predators of ducks who nest around these potholes on the ground. Right. Coyotes are not near as good of nest predators uh, for ducks. So all of a sudden it's released the fox population. The suppression of the coyotes, which was not on purpose. It's not, no one's paying these trappers to go do this. It's just a function of, of the prices. Right. It's released the foxes and it's having an ill effect on duck nest survival up there. So some of these things get really complex and, yeah. and we can have those. And, and here in our neck of the woods, you know, if you really got serious after coyotes, um, sometimes they'll they'll kill, you know, sow or, or young immature coons. So we found possums that coyotes have killed. Yep. So a, a heavy harvest of coyotes in an area may re release your possums and raccoons. So maybe you're you're targeting coyotes because you think that they're they're killing a few fawns on your property. Well, which isn't impossible. They, they do that some, but it, it's, it's not a, a heavy part of their diet. But by a heavy harvest of your coyotes, you release the possum and raccoon population, and now all of a sudden your turkey nests and your quail nests are having lower survival. So right. maybe you right. saved a couple fawn deer, but you just lost three turkey nests. So yeah. you got to ask yourself, is this really what I'm intending to do? Right. But we don't want to. We started this saying we're trappers. So Absolutely. We're, we're certainly not saying, hey, forget the trapping and, and we'll, no. we'll come back around to that. But. Right, right. You mentioned earlier, um, you know, that, that you are a trapper. And if a guy wants to go out and trap on his place and catch 20 coons in December, we're all about it. Go for it. Don't do it at the expense of your habitat work. But. That could potentially save a quail nest or two, but don't be under the assumption that those 20 raccoons are gone, and so those are 20 raccoons that aren't available to eat quail nests in April, May, and June, because those 20 raccoons will quickly be filled in when you get dispersal after the winter time and animals, raccoons start filling in. So. We, we need to always keep that in mind. We, we are trappers and we, we support trappers and we encourage it. Um, 
but you've got to realize you got to manage your expectations and and that's and that's about knowing the the uh, natural history of these critters how they roam across the landscape and what to expect as they disperse throughout the year yeah the, the perfect storm here is you know if if you want to trap and it's another use of your property great do it just don't do it thinking that it's gonna be the silver bullet it's Absolutely. not gonna fix your struggling quail population if you really though you want to spend all your time on habitat and say I don't have time to trap but yep. but you like the idea of removing some of the animals and but you don't want to spend the time on it then let it let a local trap let, yeah. let the neighbor trap. Maybe you got a neighbor kid. Maybe it's an adult. Whatever. I mean, there's the real win. Right. If you want to remove some of these animals, you don't have time to do it yourself. Um, you're working on your habitat. You know, you, you can still get that benefit of, of having somebody do it. Maybe you do save a turkey nest or two. Maybe you don't. But at least you didn't sacrifice a bunch of hours right. that you should have been working on habitat. Right. So. And, and, you know, I, speaking as a trapper, and I know you as a trapper as well, we, you know, depending on the time that we have to get around to it, I I welcome new places to trap. If somebody said, hey, would you come trap my property? I would do my best to try to go out there and make an effort to do that because I enjoy doing it. The point is, if, you, if you're not a trapper, you don't have the equipment or you don't, you don't have the time to do it, ask around because I'm sure there's somebody locally that would be glad to come trap your property. Yeah, surprisingly, with, with prices being as bad as they are, we still have new trappers coming online every year. Uh, people, this next generation is realizing that it is more of a hobby. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be about making money, and, and it can be enjoyable. And, and I tell you something that I really learned from trapping over the years was um, how well it, it made me a better outdoorsman. Um, how much more I pay attention to detail. Um, you know, when you're out, you're trying to trick an animal into stepping on a, a, a trap pan that's the size of a silver dollar. Yeah. That's the ultimate game, right? So yeah. you really have to know your animals. You have to know their habits, know their habitat, know their movements. Well, by being out and, and seeing tracks and, and reading sign and figuring out all this stuff, I'm seeing deer sign and turkey sign and I'm seeing other things yeah, right. um, that I didn't used to notice all the little details uh, you know to the point now where I'm I can be driving down the highway and which I should be paying attention to the road you not should the road ditch but, you should you know you can pick out where the coon trails are going to be coming across the road and, and where the coyote crawlers are going to be lots of times yeah. going under fences so it really does change your perspective so there's some neat things to gain from doing that and some of the trapping that we do is is because landowners call us. It's damage control. Absolutely right. So sometimes it's not about fur or fun. It's it, it is a necessity. You've yeah. got a a guy right now that's that's got some beaver problems. Yes. That you're trapped. I've got to two go guys. Yeah. Trap. I've got a lady just called me that, and it's trapping season now. And I'm an otter trapper, and she's got otters in her pond. So I'm going to try to help her out next week. I get a couple pelts. You know, out of the deal, and mm -hmm. she gets rid of the otters, so it's a win-win. Yeah. It's not doing anything. It's not my property. It doesn't do anything for me for quail or turkeys, but it's it's saving her fish in her pond. So, yeah. So trappers can really help 
folks out in that regard. Yeah, you know, along those same lines with, with being able to trick a critter or being able to read sign, the first mink I ever caught, I, I was as proud of that piece of fur as about any that I've caught. I was going along a creek bank, and I saw the faintest little mink track going along a bank, and I noticed a, a pinch point where it went into the water. And I thought, well, the only place this mink has to go is there was a high bank, and there was water, and there was one little faint trail. It's going to follow this trail. And so I put a trap there, and two days later, I caught the mink. I, I, I knew where he was going to be, and I caught him. And that was that was cool. I think I texted you a picture of that mink and said, look here, I caught a mink. Just based on, I, I figured it out and, and, and outsmarted, essentially, where that thing was going to go. And that's, I mean, that was a lot of satisfaction. You know, this mink had the whole river to go, but if you could figure out these pinch points... Then you can make sure, like, well, this mink, next time he comes by, I'm going to get him. There's, you know, I'm going to get him. And that's what happens. So yep. there's some satisfaction behind that. Yep, whether you're, yeah, you're trying to outsmart that tom turkey or even a deer. And then we're not trying to equate a, catching a, a mink to a, you know, 160-inch deer. But it's still trying to figure these things out and figure these animals out and try to beat them at their own game. Okay, so... Let's, let's take this back. So we've talked about how that um, we don't want to sacrifice habitat in the name of, of trapping all predators or in the name of spending time trapping overdoing habitat. But we realize that predators can be a significant part of the problem when we've got limited habitat. And we as managers should start should start thinking about how can we manage against these predators. So let's let's think about quail in terms of nesting and brood habitat in, in grasslands or, or open lands. How would and, and you you may want to reduce your your raccoon predation. How would you go about? What are some things you would go about doing to reduce raccoon predation or possum predation in a situation like that? Yeah, we need to think about the habitat. Again, we need to know the critter. Uh, so, what do raccoons need? Um, they are usually found around water at some point, right? Mm -hmm. um, they, they have a huge variety in their diet. They can live off a lot of different things. Um, but one thing they have to have, quail have to have a, a shrubby thicket, right? Is there a right. escape cover? Quail, uh, raccoons have to have a tree to climb. They'll live in I've seen them, I've caught them out of them, lived in ground bins, but at some point something's going to get after them, whether it's a coyote, a bobcat, dogs, right. and they've got to be able to climb a tree or they're not going to survive. So that's their escape cover. Well, quail don't need trees. Right. So if we've got some scattered trees across our grassland that we're trying to maximize our quail on, why are those there? We have to start asking ourselves, well, wait a minute, why do I have these here? Some of them may get hollowed out. So now, not only can a raccoon climb it, it's a den tree. Right. So now they're in there they're having litters it. and they're living in these trees. So we're just encouraging these animals. Dense brush piles, same deal. Maybe we've done some work and, well, we'll pile up the brush for, for habitat, right? Right. We may call them rabbit piles. Well, yeah. if you make them too dense, they end up being skunk, possum, raccoon dens. Yep. Um, so we don't want that. If, if we're doing brush piles, we just want one or two trees. We call them down tree structures. If we're making real dense brush piles, 
need to be burning them up right and getting rid of that stuff so um, and not to cut you off but we often see that uh, when a dozer has come into a piece of ground and they're knocking trees over and they're piling up and they get a lot of soil and they pile in these trees up tight and then they leave them and the next thing you know there's there's a skunk den here there's a possum den here there's a coon den over here those big tight brush piles are they may have a rabbit or two on them but they've also got tons of predators that use them so don't ignore those on the landscape either yeah absolutely um, and we so all of these animals we need to think how can we manage against them um, so another perfect example of coyotes coyotes are getting a lot of blame especially in the the, the southeast for you know fawn predation well rather than trying to kill every coyote which by the way is the toughest fur bearer to catch we've already talked about that yeah um, well how can we there's some data out there that suggests you know there white tails are gonna fawn in a, in a grassy type area herbaceous area a grassland or an old field habitat so is there ways that we could increase the size of those mm -hmm. if if my property only has a couple fawning areas and they're only a half acre on 300 acre farm it's pretty easy for the coyotes to go search those right. fawning areas right. every day in June and they're probably gonna have some success right can I have you know five acre fawning areas and have six or eight of them across my right. landscape now all of a sudden it's it's a larger search image and it's going to be a lot tougher for them to find those animals yeah how can we mitigate against what these animals do and their behavior um, same can be said for turkey nesting they're going to be nesting in in this herbaceous cover so if i've got more of it if i manage my timber right and i have way more uh, herbaceous understory i can increase the potential nest sites and make it a lot harder for raccoons or coyotes or whoever to find my turkey nests. Right. So we're, we're trying to confound these animals' ability to find the animals that we're interested in. So whether it's, it's, it's a fawn or it's a covey of quail or it's a quail nest. We want to try to confound found these efforts. And we've collected some data, Kyle, in Missouri with, with raccoons that we've put radio collars on and we have them simultaneously uh, in the, using the same habitat with quail we have radios on and we see it quite a bit of difference in how raccoo raccoons are using landscapes with scattered trees versus those landscapes without scattered trees and the probability of a quail nest being discovered by a raccoon on these landscapes. You touch on that just, just briefly. Yeah, we put these collars on some raccoons living in, in some grassland landscapes and the grasslands with with scattered trees, the raccoons were willing to go uh, about 80 meters out into the open uh, because they could run any direction to get to a, the next tree, their escape cover. And they were only willing to run about half that distance if, if it was wide open grasslands and it was just, say, one main draw running through it. It didn't right. have any scattered trees, just a, a main draw. They had uh, one escape route. One escape route, which was directly back from where they came from. So about half the distance. Well, when we overlaid our quail nests on top of these raccoon movements, sites with scattered trees, about 50% of the nests were available 
potentially to to be predated upon by raccoons because they were in their travel corridors and on the the sites without the scattered trees out in the grasslands only 27 percent of the nests were potentially available for raccoons to encounter so uh, you know, it, it doubled the potential predation rate right. by having a few scattered trees out in the landscape. And again, not only for raccoons using them, but hawks, owls, were right. providing quail predators these opportunities, and quail don't need trees. So, right. We as, can, should say that every podcast. As a manager, you got to ask yourself, a land manager, a landowner, whatever, if you're, if you're after quail, why, why do I have these trees in this specific location yeah yeah well and to take that one step further our nesting success on these grasslands with no trees was about 13 percent higher than on the grasslands with trees now we're not saying all of that was due to raccoon predation but some of it was so not only were the were the nests less susceptible to raccoon predation it manifested in higher nesting success rates, which sub, which ultimately led to higher fall population densities on these grasslands with no trees, which as a quail hunter and as a quail manager, that's what we're ultimately after, right? And so how did we achieve those increased nest success rates? Well, we didn't achieve it by trapping raccoons or possum or skunk. We achieved it by removing the habitat that these critters, specifically raccoons, used. So if we remove their, so say if you remove all your deer habitat or you remove all your quail habitat, you're gonna reduce your quail numbers or your deer numbers, right? Same goes for raccoons. If you reduce the habitat that they have to live in, you're gonna subsequently just remove their number, reduce their numbers. Excuse me. So it's that's sort of the that's sort of the, the, the process or, or the line of thinking that, that applies here. Absolutely, and you know, something else I'm, uh, I'm thinking here, a lot of people have trail cameras up, of course, uh, yep. especially the deer guys, and, and I've even started using them a little more for, for trapping, I'm trying to scout new locations and things like that. A common theme and that we commonly hear is, is people, especially with this coyote thing, is they're seeing I've got coyotes on my trail cameras all yep. the time. Well, that's fine. I mean, if you got a picture of a coyote rolling through once in a while, big deal. Right. We were on a farm today doing a consult, and there was coyote tracks in the snow, you know. Yep. guy wasn't worried a bit about it. Um, you've got packs of five coyotes on camera. I don't know. Maybe you are in a unique situation, but right. 98% of the time, it's a coyote on camera, you know, strolling through or a pair once in a while. And that They're here. They're just across the landscape. It's just nothing to get that wound up about. Um, again, if you if you want to go after them because it's fun, absolutely. If you yeah. have a neighbor kid wants to do it, that's even better. Yeah. You can work on the habitat. Um, yeah, just to kind of wrap it up, just... We've got to stick with habitat. That's got to be the goal. Making the habitat for our target critter and and reducing the habitat for our predators. That's the ultimate play. Yeah. Trapping some of these animals because it's fun, because you want to take your kids out, 
because you want to teach a youngster how to trap, that's all great. But that's just cherry on top. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's intuitive. It's intuitive to remove the habitat for the non-target or the detrimental species and maximize to the extent possible the habitat for the species that we're most interested in and, and you're going to see success. Um, so what, what we've hoped happened through this podcast is we've we've kind of spurred some interest in trapping. We want to do that. We want to encourage more trappers on the landscape. We want to spur interest in trappers. We also want to convey that habitat must come first. And I think what we have talked about, hopefully we've conveyed the, the importance of that. But to bring it back to trapping and the idea that hopefully we've spurred some interest in, in trapping cock, and you, as a trapper that's trapped since the mid-90s, you've probably seen a lot of fads, or you've seen a lot of things come and go in trapping, or you've had the opportunity to use a lot of equipment, a lot of different lures, a lot of different types of bait. What are, for, for, for the, the landowner or, the, or the, the sportsman, the manager that wants to target, say, raccoons, then we'll move to, to, to college in a minute, what are some of the things, that, the tools, products that you would recommend getting started and, and raccoon trapping. Pretty simple. If you want to catch raccoons, there's a lot of new tools on the market in the last 10 years. Um, they're called dog proofs. Uh, dog proof dog traps, proof right? Raccoon traps. They're really easy to use. A marshmallow dipped in some type of lure, uh, poked under the trigger. My personal favorite, I know you're Frank too, is, yep. is coon daggers. Coon daggers there's are several are different excellent. brands, but coon daggers have a push pull trigger. If you're going to, they, you know, they're $15 a dozen higher than some of the other brands, it's worth it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, highly effective. Um, if we move into the coyote world, yep. you know, if you're going to go out and say, I want to buy a little bit of equipment, um, again, going to be a little higher, but keep in mind these traps will last for 40 years. In fact, I have some traps that I bought from a guy that he was using in the 70s and I'm still using them. So yeah. These have a long life span, but um, they're called MB550s for coyotes. They're hard to beat. Uh, it's a Minnesota brand, 550s. Yep. Cadillac of a trap. Yeah, Great absolutely. coyote correct. traps. Um, I would highly recommend those. I've dabbled a little bit this year with some uh, Bridger number three dogless, Bridger number two dogless. Either of those size really also good for, yeah. for coyotes. Uh, cats as well. Yeah. Yeah, I was second that on the MB 550s or the, or the Minnesota brand, Minnesota Trapline uh, brand traps in the 550 size. An excellent trap. I've caught uh, a tons of different fur bear species in them, uh, but typically setting for raccoons or bobcats, or excuse me, coyotes or bobcats, you will catch possums, of course, and you'll catch raccoons and you'll catch foxes and, and they work great for, for those. Um, and they they bed in the ground like a dream. You know, some traps rock back and forth. They're hard to get in the ground. And what you don't want is a trap that rocks back and forth when you're trying to get a critter to put his foot on that on that firm pan. You don't want it to be rocking back and forth. And these MB traps are, are great for that. And, and the coon daggers, I will second that on, on the for the for the raccoons and they're they're easy with that push push pull trigger any way a coyote a raccoon goes sticking his paw in there whether it pushes the trigger or pulls it it's, it's going to catch it um what are some of the 
I know there's a there's a ton of different lures out there and we're not going to go into all this but if you were just going to say hey I'm going to make a dirt hole set for coyotes without you can give a brand or you don't have to but what would you what would you be doing for bait lure urine or what or what combination uh, typically uh, you don't have to use all of the above you can catch coyotes on just urine you can catch them on just lure but my my go-to setup I want multiple smells uh, because you know some days I'm not interested in McDonald's but if there was McDonald's and a Wendy's burger and a and a Burger King chicken sandwich I might eat one of them. You, you could catch so, me on Popeye's chicken every day. Well, if you put a dirt hole of Popeye, I would every day. And you would me catch me and cookies. Yeah, but yeah. So I'm gonna. I usually have some type of paste bait for coyotes. It's gonna go down the hole, and I'm gonna have some type of gland lure. Yeah. You don't use a lot of that. You know, the paste bait. I want something maybe a, a blob the size of a nickel, a dime. It goes down the hole. Lure. Just dip a little stick in there. I'm going to put that down my hole so there's another smell that's going to carry a little further, maybe get them coming. Of course, location's important. you got to be where they're traveling. And then I'm going to squirt some urine on the, on the backing. And, and you can look up how to make dirt hole sets. But um, I'm usually going to have three smells, a urine, a, a lure, and, and a bait. Yeah. And, and all, of these, all of these, these traps, these urines, these lures that we're talking about, there's, there's lots of different supply houses just go online and, and, and google trapping supply houses and, and you, you can find this so we didn't want to touch a lot on that but i wanted to make sure that that we gave the folks that we spurred an interest in trapping we wanted to give them just a brief kind of idea of of which way to go and which way to look quickly and then you can do your research from there or you can contact kyle you can contact me i'd probably have you contact kyle first because he can he can can get you get you faster but do you have anything to add kyle i think habitat is is again what we we're going to stress yeah one last little plug uh, along the lines of you know we hope we spurred some interest actually and, and it's really important trappers have really uh, been under fire for, for quite a few years and trapping itself has, has really fought a lot of battles with the animal rights industry and, but unfortunately hunters and trappers seem to fight with each other lots of times yeah. and that's not okay no we're all outdoorsmen we're all sportsmen and if we don't defend each other's rights to to enjoy our heritage you know missouri was settled by trappers i mean st louis was the biggest fur trading center you know uh, mm -hmm. and a lot of the west was settled by trappers yep. and, um california no surprise but california just banned all trapping in the entire state yeah it's over yeah you can't done. set a trap you can't sell a fur coat in california right so that's not good and and there's times i see online forums where you know hunters are cussing trappers and that's not okay uh, we need to stick together or we're going to lose the ability to do this and and there's a lot of times that the trappers have 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 relocated species I mean, if it wasn't for trappers, they'd be able to trap an animal yeah. and move them, re restore a population to, to some part of the country or remove nuisance critters. Yep. So it goes way beyond recreational trapping. We just need to support each other and, and defend the right to do it and not be squabbling with each other. Yeah, that's I uh, couldn't end it any better. Um, thanks, Kyle, for, for sharing your insights. 
I want to. I know we both want to thank Matt and Adam for giving us this forum to be able to talk about trapping and, and, and habitat management and how they relate. Uh, you want to get a hold of, of Kyle and me for a consult uh, or, or or any or anything talking about small game or quail. Info at uh, landedlegacy.tv. So um, that's all I got. Thanks. Thanks.